As we come then every week to the word of God, as it is read, as it's, as it's preached, we need to ask for the Lord to bless uh, this time where he speaks to us um, and when, as we listen. So let's do so. Lord, your word is authoritative. It speaks to us. It calls us out of the ordinariness of our lives. It calls to us in, our, in whatever circumstances that we, are, we find ourselves in. And it speaks reality to us. You speak reality to us through your word. And you use it to awaken us, to shake us, to form us. We pray that you would do all those things through it. This is you speaking to us, thus says the Lord. And so would the words that are, that are proclaimed here in the time of preaching, would they be in alignment with what you have to say? And lead us back to your grace and mercy, which you, we find so delightfully in Jesus Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, just as a quick review, if you're new with us or if you've uh, missed some weeks, we're going through the book of Genesis, and we've looked at the, the, the story of creation. Uh, we've looked at the accounts of the fall, but then also of God's promise to restore, and now we are being, we are being led through, through the rest of that story of God, working out his promise then slowly over the course of human history uh, to, uh, to, to redeem his people, to redeem the world. As, as we've looked the last two weeks at the account of Noah, we've seen actually there are times where you, we wonder what, what's going on. As, as human wickedness and sin just reached this, this epic level and the Lord was so displeased and so, that he went and wiped out everything in the world, all humanity too, except for Noah and his family. Eight people that he saved by means of the ark. And then they, as the, the ark settles, as the water goes forth, then they, uh, they're, they're told by God to go out and they're given this, this massive plan, a rebuilding project, to go out, to spread across the world, and to rebuild the earth, uh, to go forth and be fruitful and to multiply. Uh, the sons of, of Noah then are to go do that, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so today we're going to be reading, actually, Chapter, all of chapter 10 and then going into much of chapter 11. But as we begin, I only want to read until uh, verse 9 of chapter 11. Then we'll pick up the, the rest of it uh, later. But this is the word of God. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephoth, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lebahim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemarites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their generations, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Luz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth. Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah. According to their genealogies, in their nations... And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we, de- we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Amen. In our doctrines of the Bible, we affirm that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching and for building up the body. But sometimes we come to a long passage or a long section and we ask, so how is this profitable? Some of you might have been asking yourselves that just a moment ago when much of our passage is a list of people who had kids and they settled in various places. 
But I'd like to read a quote from John Calvin. If it pleases anyone to more accurately examine the genealogies related by Moses in this and the following chapter, that's right, we have one more, I do not condemn his industry. And some interpreters have not unsuccessfully applied their diligence and study to this point. Let them enjoy, as far as I am concerned, the reward of their labors. It shall, however, suffice for me briefly to allude to those things which I deem more useful to be noticed. In other words, I could make this a really long sermon that would actually be unprofitable for most of us with just simple information about who settled where. But there are some deeper truths that are in here that I think are really important for us to look at because they continue to speak to us today. This first section that we read in chapter, 11, in chapter 10 is often referred to as the table of nations because it is a table of where the sons of Noah, they repopulate and they settle the world in the aftermath of the flood. And interestingly, the places that are associated with these names here end up being all across the known world to the Hebrew people. Expend, expending past the, the Middle East, going into northern Africa, going into modern-day uh, Iran and Iraq, going up into Turkey and the Southeast Europe, and even stretching across the Mediterranean, going into Spain. And along with that, though, and this is, I think, one of these important parts, there are 70 nations or 70 peoples groups which are listed. You can count them all later. I already did. But 70, though, is a symbolic number throughout the Bible. It combines the numbers of 7 and 10, both of which are these biblical numbers that convey completeness. In other words, this table here, this table of nations, represents the entire world and all of its peoples. It shows all the nations, all the tribes, all the peoples of the world finding their relation together through Noah and his sons as they go out, even as they go out and they are dispersed. But then, coming out of that though, we read about Babel. We read about their infamous building project. And this table... And the story of Babel fit together. In fact, they're intended to be read as complementary to one another. We have the whole world with all of its peoples who are represented across the whole earth. And then the people with their languages. As it says in, in, in verse 3 of chapter 10, that each, they spread out in the lands, each with his own language. But then we have the people of Babel. People who are localized, who are not spread across the earth. And they are united in one language. There it says of one tongue, of one words, until God disperses them. So the story of Babel actually takes place within the repopulation that's happening in the table of nations. The Tower of Babel, this account here, is a flashback explaining how they got from point A to point B. It explains how chapter 10, verse 32 happened, about how they spread across the world after the flood. And so we see that these two accounts are linked. The table of nations represents the world, and then Babel shows us what the people of the world are like. And this is the common theme that's between the two of them. In the two, we see this connection of pride. Pride is what characterizes both of them. That's a pride that goes far beyond the simple self-satisfaction of a job that's well done. This is a pride of arrogance, of narcissism, of hubris. It's a pride that exalts itself. A pride that sees oneself as so important that no one else can tell them what to do. And it reaches for autonomy and for power. It exalts 
itself and it overthrows others. And in both of these accounts, people, both collectively and individually, transgress the boundaries of their own humanity and they attempt to reach up against their creator God in arrogance and defiance. And we first see that individually with the character of Nimrod in chapter 10, verse 8. Now, in all of chapter 10, in this table of nations, there are really only two names that we have there that have any more details other than who they fathered. Nimrod is one of those people here. It says there, starting out, that he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. A better translation of that from Hebrew, which is consistent with how it's generally translated throughout the rest of Genesis, is actually, he began to be a mighty man on the earth. Just simply put, this is how he came to power. And he came to power with great strength because it says that he is a mighty hunter. A mighty hunter before the Lord. Now what's that mean? Well, really, probably just a superlative way. Right? Can't get any higher than that. The kings in the ancient Near East context like this were extolled for their killing prowess. How mighty of a warrior were you? Well, what have you killed? I killed a bear with a, with a bow. I killed a lion with a sword. I killed a rhinoceros with a ballpoint pen. My mighty warrior, mighty king. A mighty king was a man of great aggressiveness and strength. And Nimrod was so renowned for his ability to kill that his name was memorialized throughout the, the ages as a proverb. Oh, what a nice kill. Nice kill, Nimrod. And so his rise to power then Becoming a mighty man on the earth was one of unusual aggressiveness. You can imagine what sort of king that he must have been. A just servant of the people? No. Nimrod was some sort of tyrant. A man who was willing to use his killing strength for the means of his own power and his own name. But poignantly is his name. Nimrod, which means we rebel. And who is he rebelling against than none other than the God of the heavens? A Nimrod becomes known for exalting himself in his own power so that there will be no other authority than himself. He will be accountable to no one. And that includes even the Lord God who sits enthroned above all. He will rebel and he will kick against God in an attempt to make him the highest authority. See, friends, the Vladimir Putins of this world are nothing new. The spirit of Nimrod continues to live on and on and on even today. People who use their power not to serve but for their own agendas. People who are willing to write their own names in the book of history using the blood of others. And people about whom we wonder, is there no sense of recourse? How can they get away with that? What can we do? What can anyone do? Friends, we need to see this for what it is. It is human rebellion against the most high God. But as we'll see in a moment with Babel, God doesn't take this sort of rebellion and arrogance lightly. Because even the strongest kings of the earth are still accountable to him. No matter who they think they are. Because Nimrod is associated with Babel. See it in verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Um, Even in the land of Shinar where Babel was built. It's unclear if, if Nimrod was, was the king of Babel when all of it happened, 
or if he just simply founded the city. But what is clear, though, for us is that God shows how even the most proud, the most aggressive, the most arrogant leaders and kings, that they cannot merely overthrow their accountability to him, no matter how much they wish. They're living in a dangerous delusion. God knows. God sees, and God will give to them their comeuppance. We see also then in Babel then that this arrogance and pride isn't simply individual, but it's also collective. And if we go to chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, like Nimrod, the people of Babel also exhibit this distinct pride and arrogance. But it's not a pride in their own personal strength, not in this sort of aggressiveness and power that that Nimrod had, but their pride is in the work of their hands. It's in their ability to build. It's their technological advances. It's their own human cleverness and ingenuity. And so as they are united together in one language, because remember, this is a flashback, they're also united in their intents. They deliberate together Again and again, we see, come, let us, come, let us, right? They're, they're, they're doing this together in this intentional way of what they're going to set out to do. They, they start out here, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Firing bricks so that they can stack them up like stone. Using the natural elements for their own purposes of building the grand edifice. It's a certain confidence in putting putting to use their own ability to manipulate the natural world. Come, let us build a city. It doesn't seem so bad, building a city. Cities afford protection. Cities are gathering places. But it's their intention, though, that reveals their pride. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What were they supposed to do? What did God command them to do as Noah and his family emerged out of the ark. He said, go forth, multiply, fill the earth, go out, settle the lands, disperse, fill it up. But these people are going willfully against the, against the will of God. Rather than dispersing, they're doing everything that they can do to prevent it. They're building in spite of what God had willed for them. And this goes beyond just a mere city. It's rebellion. It's casting aside his authority. They're going to be the ones who get to say what's right, not God. And the city isn't enough. It's also, come, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens. The city isn't enough. They need to further then build a monument to their own pride. And the, the, the point of focus of their pride and their arrogance is this tower. And what they begin to build was a ziggurat. Right? I don't know if you know what a ziggurat is. If you look at, at old Babylonian uh, uh, architecture, I don't know if how many people are versed in, well, in Babylonian architecture, but I'm sure you've seen a picture of, of in, in, uh, in the Middle East, these old ancient towers that look like a giant pyramid with these steps on the side going up into the heavens. That's what they were building, a ziggurat here. That's the exact same thing. And at the top of a ziggurat would have been this shrine to their particular god up there. And then they would have painted the top of of that in a color that that matched the the sky above so that it actually, from one perspective, looking down up, it almost kind of did look like it would disappear into the heavens and link heaven and earth. 
And in their mind, that was what they were trying to do. They were trying to bridge the heavens and the earth. They were building a gateway to heaven. In fact, in the ancient language of the people of Babel, uh, to these people as they were building, Babel means gate of God. It's exactly what they were trying to build. But their bridge to heaven, though, wasn't intended as it being a way for them to enter up into heaven. And it's the joys of heaven and the bliss that we generally associate with it. As much as it was actually an act of violence, it was an act of defiance. Because this was the gate that in their minds would allow them to instead storm heaven and try to overthrow God, prove themselves as not needing God because they could climb up to to their level or climb up to his level and render him irrelevant for them. They could get up just fine on their own. Perhaps they were just as powerful of him and they didn't need him to tell them what to do any longer. Then they say this, come, let us make a name for ourselves. What else is this than self-seeking motives for human glory? Looking for significance in our own achievements and proving, uh, proving ourselves to be something. At its heart here is the fear of anonymity. Being afraid that we will live our lives in relative obscurity and we won't have recognition from anyone for what we think is valuable. Like the people of Babel, we too crave glory. So many of us are afraid of living anonymous lives because it means that we fade into the background and all the glory and honor and accolades and recognition might go to someone else. We want to be known. We'll do anything we can to get attention. The ego's a fragile thing. The ego's like a balloon. The more inflated it gets and the larger it grows, the easier it becomes to burst. Now, of course, though, with this tower, there are two perspectives to it. The people of Babel are looking up from the ground at their ziggurat. They see it reaching into the sky into what they believe it's piercing the heavens. But that's not what God sees. God sees things much different than we do because God looks at reality. Pride has this way of blinding ourselves to the true nature of reality. The reality about ourselves, the reality about others, and frankly, the reality about God. And our perspectives are often skewed because of our failure to see the way, or to see things the way that they really are. One of my kids came home from preschool and he told us that one of his classmates, that his house his house touches the sky. Really? Yeah. His house touches the sky. Well, it turns out after some conversation, not because we were trying to find out, but we were just curious and talking with his, with his mom one day as we found out, hey, uh, heard your house touches the sky. Oh, yeah. Turns out that this house that touches the sky is just a two-story house. All right. Now, is that a Is that taller than a lot of houses? Yeah, it is, right? Especially from this five-year-old vantage point. It might look big to him, but that's not the reality of it. Touches the sky? Not quite. But God, though, sees reality. God sees the reality of this tower. And in verse 5 in chapter 11, it says that he had to come down to see what it is that they had built. For as great of an achievement as they thought they had constructed, God actually had to stoop down from the heavens to get a closer look. What are they, what are they making down there? Kind of like we, we would get down on our hands and knees to look at an anthill. 
See, for as much mind-boggling things that humanity has accomplished throughout history and that are legitimately great, and there are they're, they're some significant contributions and, and accomplishments, but perhaps they aren't as significant in the grand scheme of things as we would like to think, or at least from the way that God sees them. And these people in Babel, they fired bricks. They made enough of them to build a tower. They erected the scaffolding. They, they used their ingenuity to build this monument. God looks at it and he says, well, who made the clay? Who gave uh, the earth its gravity to, that you've been manipulating to prevent this whole thing then from tumbling? Who gave you the brain where you thought up such a plan? Let's talk about the significance of this a little bit here. Scientists have mapped the human genome. They've unlocked so much information in it that we don't even know where to begin in sorting through it all. God asks, who made the genome? Who organized all its information and put it in there? We've harnessed the power of the atom. We've splitting them, uh, fusing them, replicating um, releases of energy that mimic the sun. And God looks at it all and he reminds us again, where did all that come from? Looking at ourselves, looking at our achievements from God's perspective has a way of subduing our egos. God comes down to take a look at their famed tower in the heavens. It's not what he sees. What he sees in the tower is the focus of their opposition to him. A people who are united in their language. A people who are united in their sinful hearts and in their arrogance against him. And he knows that in their current state that this is only going to be the beginning. There is nothing there in their darkened minds that or there is nothing that their darkened minds cannot devise that they won't then carry out. Using the latest technical, technological advances on the united front, they have now entered into a new era of anti-God rebellion to carry out their wicked plots. God sees it, he knows, and he decides to do something about it. Not because he felt threatened by them. I mean, we've just been pondering the nature of God. How could he? No, he looks at it, he says, enough's enough. I'm not going to stand for your arrogance and your pride any longer. I'm not going to be mocked. So he puts it to an end by confusing them, by confusing their language. God comes down and he crosses the supposed bridge to heaven that they've made. He says, I'll cross it then. But he pronounces judgment and he puts a curse on them. Because one morning everyone wakes up and they're suddenly unable to communicate with each other anymore. Numerous languages, numerous dialects are now coming from their mouths. And so their work is no longer united. It becomes frustrated. It stalls. And so they gather as, not as one, but they gather in clusters by their own languages and they go out and they scatter, united no more. Ironically, it's their attempts to prevent scattering in the first place. Yeah, let's, let, let's build this city in a tower, lest we, we, we be dispersed. That's the very thing which ended up bringing it about in the end. And in another cruel twist, they actually do end up making a name for themselves. Babel. Not gate of God like they intended in their own language, but in the Hebrew language, it means confusion. Not the best look for them. God's will cannot be overthrown. Can't frustrate his plans. He even still uses human actions, even the most rebellious actions, to to still bring about his purposes. And you know what? You might even, if you buck against that, 
he's still going to use you. And you might actually end up looking like a fool in the end, just like these people. We see the pride of Nimrod. We see the pride of Babel. And then with them, this same pride then also goes throughout the whole world. And there's a reason that these two are linked. We've said that. With the, the heart of Babel was the same heart of Nimrod. And they stand together in the table of nations here. Uh, they represent the entire world. The, the pride of Babel didn't just go away as soon as the people were dispersed. No, as they were dispersed and as they, God sent them out across the world then, they took their prideful hearts with them. And the same continues still today. The story of Babel's rebellious pride becomes the same story for human history, both on a collective sense and on an individual basis. In fact, if you had to distill all manifestations of human sin down to one root, you know what it would be? It's probably pride. Pride is probably what you would find laying at the bottom of the pile. It's the rebellion in the human heart which casts aside the authority of God for our own authority. It exalts oneself above all others, including God. It insists that it knows better. It says that it has a better wisdom or that the reality of life isn't actually determined by God. In fact, the notion of pride as the root of or the underlying sin of all other sins kind of runs throughout the whole Bible too. I mean, think about even back in, in the garden. What is it that drove Adam and Eve to eat from the tree in the first place? It wasn't just the beauty of the fruit. It wasn't just their desire for it. It was the serpent's words, has God really said? It's those words which inflame their hearts against God so that they reached out and because they wanted to be like him, they couldn't bear any longer being under his good authority or, be, or, 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 or bearing with their limitations any longer. In fact, even the serpent who deceived them with those lies, Satan wasn't content with his position beneath God. He tried to ascend over him, an act of defiant pride. If we understood this concept a little better here of pride being at the root of all of our sins, then maybe we'd start to take our sins a little more seriously. Because it means that there is no benign sin. All of them are at their root then, this prideful rebellion against God. It's a divine mutiny against the Lord of the heavens. Even those smallest sins that we want to think about, those small sins, well, if any sin comes out of an attempt to overthrow the authority of God from my life in that moment, then we need to view those small sins a little bit differently. It's mutiny. It's treason against, against the, the creator God of the universe. So humanity, both collectively and individually, comes or continues here to stand in the brazen defiance of God. All right, we hold our heads up high while simultaneously shaking our fist at him. As proud people, people who may be separated by language and culture, but united, though, in our fallen state, the world's also cursed, just as like Babel. We're all in need of salvation. Pride isn't just an action that we do. Pride's a disposition. Pride is in the heart. And a cure for that needs to go deep. But it's despite the the pride and arrogance which infects the entire world, though, we're going to see in a moment here that God also graciously preserves a people and a line in his faithfulness to save them from the curse of pride. God's preservation we see here is in another genealogy that we're going to come to read now. 
uh, starting in verse 10. It follows uh, Peleg in the line of Shem, as we, as we saw before in, in verse 25 of, of chapter 10. Peleg is the, only, the other name other than Nimrod with, with added detail to it. As we've seen, names are important in this passage, and Peleg is no different. His name means division. That's likely twofold. The first being, it's implied that the Lord's scattering of Babel took place during his lifetime. That he was named in this sort of prophetic manner that the united peoples of the earth would be divided. We've seen that idea with Noah. Noah was named rest in kind of this, this prophetic idea that he would be one who would give a sort of rest to uh, to the people of, of the earth there. But it's, it's also, though, a division of his line, of his descendants that would be distinct from the rest of the world. So let, let me read the line of Shem, and starting in, in verse 10 of chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he followed Shelah. And Arpachshad lived and he followed Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he, followed, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived and he followed Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. Here we are. And Uh, And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Sarag lived after he fathered, uh, or Reu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. The table of nations from chapter 10, representing the whole world, comes to Peleg. But it doesn't follow through him if you take a look. That's the last we hear of Peleg, just the one off there. Because the line in the table of nations in chapter 10 goes through his brother Joktan and his line. We don't hear about Peleg anymore. But chapter 11 here with the line of Shem is where we hear of Peleg's line continuing without reference to any of the other peoples of the earth. It's division. He becomes a distinct line from the rest of the world. And his line continues all the way to Abram, to Abraham, to whom the, the one that the Lord God would come and through a covenant would promise to bless him and to give him a blessed offspring that would fill the earth. In the midst of a prideful people, a prideful world that is hell-bent on overthrowing God's rule, God graciously preserves a line of people. He plucks them out and says, you are mine. He makes a covenant promise to them. He makes a way of salvation here when there seemed to be no other way. A way of salvation that through through this line then would be the salvation for the rest of the world. 
This is where the, the rest of those nations, those table of nations, where us also, where the people of Babel, with all of our prideful hearts, are able to find hope. This line that's preserved by God going through Abram would pave the way for a prideful world to be saved from the curse of casting off God's rule. Because not only would Abram be blessed, but through him would come blessing to the world. Through him would come the the royal seed, the royal offspring, Jesus Christ, the hope of the nations. The promised offspring would be God coming down again to earth. Viewing the pride, viewing the arrogance, viewing the rebellion of the world like he did all those millennia before. But instead of cursing us for our pride like he did at at Babel, he was cursed instead on the cross for all of the the arrogance of his people, for for all of the the ways that we have tried to cast off his, his authority from us. No, it was all laid upon him The cross obliterates our pride to show us just how lost we are apart from him because the way to the heavens isn't through what we can do. The way to the heavens, the way to being with God, the way to to cross the, the bounds of heaven and earth there is through humility before God and through faith in Jesus Christ in the one who came for us. It's not in our own acts. The people of Babel tried unsuccessfully to make their name great. This is where they went wrong. A name isn't made great by our own achievements. Not in the eyes of God. Think of the the few notable individuals, really, it's only a few notable individuals throughout throughout history whose names are still known. They aren't viewed viewed anymore significantly by God. He's not impressed by their advances. He's not impressed by their accomplishments or what the history books say about them. The preservation of Shem's line through Peleg alone shows us that names are made great only by God's sovereign grace that intervenes in our lives, saving us from our own prideful hearts and then giving us a name. In fact, Shem, his name actually means name. To admit a people who are seeking to make a name for themselves, Shem's descendants would instead be given a name by God. But when we get to Abram, God promises that he will make his name great. He will make his, the name of his descendants great. It's not a name that would put their shame on display, like a name like confusion, but a better name, though, that displays God's affection. Beloved. In Revelation 2, it says that those who are in Jesus will be given by God a white stone with a new name on it, a name that's known by God. That might be a name that's lived in in quiet anonymity, relative obscurity. But the thing is, it's a name that's also given by God, though. It's a name that has been written in his book of life from eternity and will continue to be written for eternity a name that will never be dragged through the mud, a name that can never be taken away from you, a name that God preserves and keeps you with. See, it's the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the greatness in him is the only antidote to human pride. It's the only cure for our arrogance then that turns us then to him in humble love. Friends, it's with the, that sort of humility here that we approach the table. We see the emblems of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, 
We don't climb our way up to him. We are seated. He invites us to sit at his table. We receive from him. We don't come holding to our accomplishments. We come instead realizing the ways that we have rejected his authority and that we've tried to, to, to make a name apart from him. But we come though with humility and we come with faith knowing what it was that took, uh, or what, it, what, it, what it took to save us then from our self-centered hearts. It took Jesus Christ crucified. So when we come to the table, it's not a place for us to come with any shred of pride because the body of Jesus was torn due to our arrogance. And he shed his blood to wash you free from every stain of vainglory that you might have. How will you come to this table? Let's come with gladness. Let's come with humility. Let's pray. Lord God, these, these genealogies, these stories these, these, that, that are so long ago, and at times they might seem so obscure, but yet we see in there that we are just like these people. We see your never-ending nature, your, your, your nature which always continues to be just the same. You deal with pride, but yet you also have dealt with the pride of your people on the cross, and so that we can come before you with no pride. And we pray that you would beat that down in us. That we would look to you, not holding to a name that we want to make for ourselves, but we would hold, we'd hold to the name that you have given to us in Jesus. Lord, make us people who love that, who have a confidence in that name of that which you have done for us. Forgive us for the ways that we have reached up and tried to, to pull you down from the heavens or put us above you. We are nothing. We are insignificant. But yet you look at us with care. Lead us to the table with that deep humility. As you, the sovereign Lord, the one who is seated in, in the thrones, rooms of heaven, you graciously invite us to come to this table. Prepare us in Jesus' name. Amen.